Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. Generally, any surgical or invasive procedure, whether for cosmetic or reconstructive reasons, can be associated with unwanted discomfort or pain. And in this modern day of medicine, we of course have ways of minimizing that. One of the more standard tools for this purpose has been the use of what's called opioids, which are generally quite effective at reducing or eliminating pain. Opioids are narcotics, which by the way comes from the Greek word narcoon, and refers to drugs which have the capability of inducing sleep. But as you are no doubt aware now, opioids can cause some unintended problems, both in the short term and long term most notably addiction potential. Yet before I go on, let's clear up some terminology. What's the difference between opioids and opiates? Opiates, spelled O-P-I-A-T-E-S, are what's called natural chemical compounds, meaning they are extracted or refined from the extracts of natural plants, in this case poppies. This group includes morphine, heroin, codeine, and opium. Opioids, however, spelled O-P-I-O-I-D-S, refer to both these naturally occurring compounds and to chemically similar narcotics that are synthesized or manufactured. These include hydrocodone, like Norco or Vicodin, oxycodone, like Percocet, Demerol, fentanyl, and even methadone, which is sometimes used to treat addiction because it does not give a high. Certainly not all of these compounds are used in the course of treating perioperative pain, but it's good to have a basic understanding of how they relate to each other. So, although opioids were a great discovery to combat pain during or after a procedure, the potential problems with them have prompted exploration into the possibility of alternatives. And that exploration has been quite fruitful. In this episode, we speak with a long-practicing plastic surgeon, Dr. Fuad Samaha in Boston, who shares his thoughts about choices for effective pain control in plastic surgery and alternatives to opioids. Let's listen in now. Well, I'm here today with Dr. Fuad Samaha, a plastic surgeon in private practice with Boston Plastic Surgery. Welcome all the way from Boston. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Regina. It's nice to be here. Yes. And, you know, just for the listeners, we knew each other back in the day, didn't we? Back during our plastic surgery training in St. Louis. And we've come a long way, haven't we? Yes. This was uh, quite a while ago. It was good times then. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, I would love it if you could tell everyone uh, a little bit about your practice right now. What type of patients or cases do you mainly focus on? 
As you know, my practice started out in, in reconstructive surgery, microsurgery, and hand surgery, but currently my practice is focused on cosmetic surgery and has been for probably the last 15 years or so. We provide a full service of plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery, face, breast, body, injectables. Mm -hmm. And we also have a significant non-surgical aspect of our practice with specialized providers for uh, non-surgical services such as non-surgical fat reduction, skin care, injectables, those sorts of things. Yeah, so you've got a nice blend of things in your yeah. practice. I think that's wonderful. Well, now, when you do your procedures or surgeries, where do you usually perform those? Uh, you know, what percent might be in office setting versus a surgery center or a hospital? Pretty much 100% of our procedures are performed on-site in our office-based surgery center. So we have an accredited surgery center on-site. Oh, that's great. Uh, accredited by Quad A. And uh, we are very proud of our setup, uh, the physical plant, the staffing, uh, the whole setup is really nice and provides privacy and safety to our patients. I'm on staff at several hospitals locally, but I uh, perform most of my procedures in my office-based facility. Yeah, that's nice that you have the capability of doing that because I think a lot of surgeons don't necessarily have that. Um, Well, I'm sure it depends on the case, but what types of anesthesia are you able to offer and who administers it? We have a group of wonderful board-certified anesthesiologists that we've been working with for about 20 years. So uh, they know me very well. I know them very well. I've trusted them with my patients, with my family members. They do a great job. And they provide the appropriate level of anesthesia for the case that we're doing. So anything from general anesthesia to IV sedation. Uh, we do perform some procedures on the local anesthesia, but only in limited cases, you know, where it's appropriate. Yeah. Well, we're here today to talk about pain management and plastic surgery and the possibilities available for avoiding opioids if desired. And I'm sure most of the listeners are aware that opioid addiction has become a national problem. And that has changed how many doctors prescribe medication for pain control though I'm sure things have changed since then, could you reflect on the early days of your practice and how was pain typically managed during and after procedures? Yeah, that's a really good perspective to to think back because uh, for a while during our training and in early days of our practice, we were taught and there was big push that monitoring pain was like the fourth vital sign, you know, blood pressure, heart rate, respirations, and pain level. Right. And it had to be documented on a scale of one to 10, and you had to bring it down as low as possible at almost at any cost possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, not enough thought was given at that time to the consequences of very aggressive pain management, especially with opioid medications. Now we know a lot more about the adverse effects of opioid medications, both in the short term as far as side effects and in the long term as far as the addiction potential of those medications. And so there's been a 180 degree shift in um, approach to pain management for most doctors. Uh, There are still many doctors and surgeons who prescribe post-operative pain medication the old fashioned way, you know, dozens of Percocet pills, you know, just 
and take them as you feel like taking them. Yeah. And that's just literally a very dangerous situation because you never know how predisposed your patient may be to the adverse effects of opioid medications. Right. Well, let's talk about what, what is the problem with opioids? What side effects can they cause in the, even in the short term? Yeah, in the short term, the biggest uh, problem people encounter is constipation, uh, and it can happen very quickly. It can be a very miserable experience. The misery of constipation can be much worse than any postoperative pain. Yes. <laughs> and uh, patients can be desperate to relieve themselves of that problem. There are other issues such as itching and bloating and nausea, nausea, especially after having anesthesia, it can exacerbate postoperative nausea. You know, plus they're very sedating, so it could affect mm-hmm. the postoperative mindset of the patient and their ability to recover in a normal way. That's a good point. Yeah, one of the things that we try to emphasize is to help our patients feel as good and normal as possible because mm-hmm. the the worse you feel the worse you're gonna f- feel basically you yeah. know it's kind of a vicious cycle and so the more you have a positive attitude and you have a positive experience the more you recover better and more quickly and uh, have a better outlook on your outcome of the procedure it has a very positive effect all around mm-hmm. so uh Getting people, you know, heavily sedated, nauseated, feeling miserable, constipated, it's just not a good thing. And so if you can get somebody through with a very manageable level of pain, uh, but feeling good otherwise, it's really the right approach in my mind. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Would you think that opioid use is still okay in the short term, or should it always be avoided? No, I mean, I think that there are many times when you have, you're in so much pain that you need to use an opioid to get past that stage. You know, Mm -hmm. some of the procedures we perform are frankly very painful. And no matter how much you can set up systems to get around that, sometimes you need to supplement that with a little bit of opioid. So in our practice, we use a multi-medication approach and we can have opioids available as a backup option in case the other medications are not sufficient so that people don't feel like they're stranded and without an option and you know in severe pain and unable to do anything about it yeah they want to be able to feel that you're there for them whatever yeah yeah and that there's a there's an option to deal with the pain you know effectively Well, as we talk about pain management for plastic surgery procedures, we can kind of break it down into two components. And the first is what we prescribe after a procedure to control pain. And the second is what we can do preventatively during the procedure to result in less postoperative pain in the first place. So regarding that first category, uh, we've talked about this just a little bit, but how has the way you prescribe medication for post-op pain changed over the years? Do you prescribe a smaller number of pills, for example? Is that one way that you do that? And if there are some alternatives to opioids in the post-op period, what do you think is out there and what do you like to use? Yeah, so I think it actually starts with a mental preparation of the patient to know what to expect. Because if you are hit with a wall of pain that you didn't know it was coming, it's, it's going to be very hard to, to deal with that. So we spend a lot of time in the preoperative period talking to patients about what to expect and preparing them for the uh, 
pain medication protocol that we prescribe and we customize that for each patient. That's nice. And we actually have a document that we share with our patients to explain our approach to the pain management and that we're not aiming for zero out of 10 pain control. They're not going to have no pain at all because... Mm To achieve that would require a heavy dose of aggressive medications that will have too many side effects. Mm -hmm. So explaining that ahead of time lets people kind of know what to expect and not to be surprised that we're expecting them to deal with a small amount of pain or discomfort in exchange for eliminating the uh, side effects or reducing them. Mm -hmm. So this preoperative education, there are protocols You know, they're called enhanced recovery after surgery protocols, ERAS protocols that uh, have been set up to help the overall operative experience be more positive. And that Mm -hmm. involves appropriate hydration, appropriate warming, uh, you know, many different measures that are a little bit counter to what we used to do years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, but that have been shown to enhance the uh, operative experience overall. And as a consequence, help people deal with their post-operative discomfort much better. Mm-hmm. And then we have this uh, combination of medications that we prescribed. It starts with Tylenol, basically, mm-hmm. a regular dose of Tylenol. Uh, some people use intravenous Tylenol, which is very effective. Uh, we don't, but we start people on a regular dose of Tylenol, not on an as-needed basis starting before surgery. We also started them on a, an anti-inflammatory and in order to avoid the bleeding complications that can happen with anti-inflammatories, we use Celebrex when possible because mm-hmm. Celebrex is an anti-inflammatory kind of like ibuprofen or Motrin, but it's not associated with as much of a bleeding complication. Mm-hmm. So we start people on that before surgery. We also use a medication called gabapentin, uh, which can help reduce pain perception and has a little bit of a sedative effect. So we use it the night before surgery. People get a good night's sleep before surgery. Then we use it the morning of surgery and then every evening after that. And it tends to supplement the pain management very well. And then we have the backup option of opioid medications in small quantities in case people really need them. Yeah. That's a nice list of non-opioid options for people. And I think it's really great that your practice is customizing that for each patient. Uh, Certainly their procedures will be of different magnitudes, but, you know, each patient is a little bit different in terms of how they will be able to handle their pain afterwards. And to be tuned into that and adjust their protocol based on that, I think is wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I think it is important to recognize that difference between people and how they are going to respond to pain and what kind of pain medication support they're going to need. We actually have many patients who are recovering addicts who have had opioid addiction in the past. Yeah. You know, earlier in my practice, that prospect really worried me a bit about how to uh, address those issues. But as I've gained more experience with that, I actually look forward to those patients because you actually know what you're dealing with. Yeah, no surprises. Yeah. And they know what they're dealing with. They know what to expect and they know what they want. And some of them are completely dedicated to a non-opioid pain management protocol and they'll do whatever it takes to get there. And others are willing to negotiate. And we usually get their addiction provider involved in planning for their post-operative pain management. Mm 
Excellent. And which is important because if they do end up taking opioids and they get tested or something like that, that needs to be documented that this was part of a mutually agreed upon protocol. Yeah. So recognizing those differences is really uh, very important and being willing to talk about pain management before you even do the surgery is very important. Yeah. I had surgery a year ago and my surgeon never talked to me about pain, never told me what they were going to prescribe to me for pain, never gave me anything ahead of time to reduce my perception of pain when I wake up from surgery. I actually had to ask for all those things. I asked for the type of anesthesia that I wanted. I had to ask for the type of pain medication that I wanted. And if I hadn't, I, I don't know what would have happened. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just uh, the traditional way of dealing with things is not a good way. And I think it's time to be a little bit more proactive about it and to spend the time discussing this with patients ahead yeah. of time. That makes perfect sense. Well, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about that second category of pain management, uh, what can be done during a procedure to lessen post-op pain. Even if a patient might be asleep for a surgery you're doing, would you still potentially inject some numbing medicine into the area? If so, is that short-acting? Or I would really like you to tell us about long-acting local or numbing medications. So yes, in my practice, I inject a lot of local medication even when my patients are asleep. We spend a lot of time deciding what to inject and how much to inject and calculating safe dosages for medications to inject. Uh, the anesthesia group that I mentioned that I work with, they expect that in our surgery center. They work at other surgery centers also where people don't do that. Mm. And I hear from them routinely that the patients in the other surgery centers wake up differently. They have a different perception of pain. Their recovery is longer because they've received a lot heavier anesthetic medications during surgery. So injecting local medication in the areas where I'm operating decreases the pain perception by the patient's nervous system during surgery. There's mm -hmm. a thing called the gate theory of pain perception. So by blocking the way the brain is perceiving pain, even while the patient's asleep, they wake up feeling less pain at the end of surgery. And also, it allows the anesthesiologist to give less anesthesia. So people wake up feeling better. Our rate of post-operative nausea and vomiting is very close to zero. Almost nobody throws up. If we have a nausea in our post-op patient, it's an event in our practice. It's very unusual. That's impressive. So it really helps with managing things on many levels. So I do inject locally where I'm going to make an incision or, or operate. But there are also different types of long-acting anesthetics that can be injected and sometimes injected in what's called a nerve block. Mm -hmm. So you can inject along a nerve that provides sensation to an area so that you can keep that area numb and essentially pain-free for sometimes up to three days if you use one of these long-acting uh, local anesthetics. Yeah, so great. We use that a lot in our tummy tucks. We do something called the TAP block, T-A-P block, where a block is injected. Uh, we use an ultrasound to guide the injection and put it right where that nerve is. And we use a long-acting uh, nerve block in that area to give pain relief for up to three days after surgery. Wonderful. Do you think the use of either nerve blocks or other long-acting medications that are injected, do you think that actually reduces the amount and strength of pain medication that might be required after a surgery? 
You know, that's a very good question, and I don't have a really good answer. Theoretically, it should. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, not all of my tummy tuck or abdominoplasty patients request the tap lock when I describe it to them. There's an additional cost to it, which can be a limiting factor that long-acting medication is very expensive. So if somebody is going to use it, they need to pay for the medication. Uh, I mean, it's only a few hundred dollars, but it's still a few hundred dollars. It's not zero. Makes a difference to people. And um, that could be a deterrent. And some people just don't want another medication. And I hear from a lot of people, you know, I've had five kids. I'm going to be fine. I don't need any sticking nerve block. Oh, my gosh. But the people who request the, the tap block are usually people who fall in different categories. Some of them are people who want to avoid opioids at all costs, mm. such as previous opioid addicts yeah. uh, or people who've had a bad experience with opioids, with nausea, vomiting or other side effects and who really want to just avoid it. So they'll do whatever it takes sure. to reduce that risk. But the other category is people who know that they have a very low threshold for pain. Mm -hmm. So they also want to do whatever they can to reduce their threshold for pain because they know they just can't take pain very well. And so that's a self-awareness that many people have. But those people are hard to judge to see if the tap lock helped them or not, because even the little bit of pain that comes through with the tap lock sometimes can be more pain than they really wanted. Mm-hmm. In my practice, it's hard to really quantify how much those blocks have helped because the background behind them affects the perception of pain with and without a tap lock. So it confused the issue a little bit. Right. There are many studies that have been done on a clinical level that show that the tap blocks and other blocks like them reduce the amount of opioid medication given. Uh, but in my practice, it's been kind of a mixed bag. So we use it very uh, selectively and with a good understanding on everybody's part about what, what to expect with a tap block or, or blocks like it. Well, could you explain to the listeners what a pain pump is? And is that something that you've ever used in your practice? I did use pain pumps a long time ago. I used them uh, mainly in my uh, breast surgeries and in my abdominoplasty surgeries. And so if we're talking about the same thing, I used a device that delivered a local anesthetic through a small catheter or tube under the skin and into the operative site to keep that area kind of consistently numbed up. Yeah, even after the surgery. Even after the surgery and for up to several days. So there's usually a reservoir that holds the uh, local anesthetic and it delivers it either by an actual pump or by compression. Some of them were balls that were kind of under tension and, you know, they would just squeeze the fluid through a little tube into the tissues. Mm -hmm. And I've had mixed uh, results with those pain pumps. Some patients love them. Some patients hated them. Sometimes the medication leaks out through the tube and becomes a major nuisance. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think overall, uh, as we improved our medication management of pain, I found that the pain pumps were becoming less and less useful in my mm-hmm. practice, and I stopped using them. The hassle factor for the patient became greater than the benefit factor. And so we haven't used them now for several years, and we've shifted instead into a more thoughtful medical management. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think a lot of people could say the same. Well, how about 
the use of long-acting numbing medications or back in the day pain pumps, uh, do you think that this type of concept reduced the frequency of patients having to stay overnight after bigger surgeries? In other words, do you find with your new way of managing pain, you're getting less people that have to stay overnight? Well, uh, I have a kind of a biased perspective on this because I never admit my patients overnight. Ah, My patients all go home no matter how big the surgery. I believe strongly in outpatient surgery. I believe in early ambulation, walking early on to reduce risks of blood clots. Uh, And I believe in the benefit of sleeping in your own bed Mm -hmm. uh, and not relying on someone to bring you a bedpan, I think getting up to use the bathroom (laughs) and walking even a few steps a couple of times throughout the night can improve your circulation. So I literally have not admitted a patient after surgery for at least 15 years. Ah. I used to admit all my facelifts overnight. I don't. I used to admit all my tummy tucks overnight. I never do. The bigger body contouring procedures like a body lift or, you know, where you're kind of doing a front tummy tuck and a back tuck. I don't do those at the same time anymore. I do one half at one setting, one half at another setting. Uh, It's been shown to reduce risk of complications. It's a more manageable situation for the patient and gives me an opportunity to do minor revisions on those long incisions if I need to at the second procedure. Mm And I think it's safer and it can be done this way as an outpatient both times. So, mm-hmm. but I, I do believe that the way we manage pain has helped us in uh, keeping people out of the hospital and yeah. uh, going home. I mean, sometimes they go home with a nurse or sometimes they go home with a qualified person to assist them mm-hmm. postoperatively, especially if they have certain needs. Instead of just family. Yeah. But the hospital setting is something that I have been actively trying to stay out of uh, for my patients. Yeah, I think that's great. And it is ideal. If you have found a way to accomplish that, then that's the way to go. So good job. You know, we've talked about the use of long-acting numbing medicine, uh, numbing medication that's injected. Do you find that there are risks associated with those medications? You alluded to that a little bit, but how do you mitigate that? Yeah, so they're real medications and they have risks. I mean, we know that the use of numbing medications needs to be monitored very closely uh, based on the patient's size uh, and how much medication they, they will be able to metabolize and how quickly based on how the medication is delivered. If you deliver the medication in or under the skin, it's going to be metabolized differently from a deeper infusion, like in fatty tissue when we're doing liposuction, Um, because the way the medication behaves and the way it's released into the body and metabolized by the body is very different. So you need to have a strong understanding of how those medications are metabolized and what levels are acceptable before you reach a level that can be associated with complications. And the complications are real if they happen. So you really want to practice your whole life and not see one of those complications. Yes, my goodness, yes. So we, we monitor the dosage of how much we give, the type of medication. Each medication has different levels that are tolerable by the body, and it depends on the person's size and how the medication is uh, injected. 
Mm-hmm. So it's something that we spend a lot of time on at each and every surgery. We never take it for granted. We review exactly how we're doing at every surgery. Uh, sometimes you can mix the short-acting medication with the long-acting medication. You need to be careful how to do that. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time before we do anything, before we start any surgery, so that every team member, the nurse, the technician who's going to hand me the syringe, the nurse who's going to mix up the medication, the anesthesiologist who's monitoring the patient, everybody needs to be on board about what we're giving and how we're giving it and how quickly and what the total dose will be when we're done administering that medication. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great philosophy and probably the safest one. Mm-hmm. So, Well, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, but patients these days are so aware of their options and often like to direct many of the choices in their care. You've said you sometimes get requests from patients, but how often are you finding patients coming into you these days saying, I really want to avoid opioids? Uh, how are we going to do that? Very, very frequently. It's, it's very common these days to hear that. Yeah. Like I said earlier, it can be due to a variety of reasons. Um, Prior experience with opioids was negative, or they have a family member who had an addiction problem, and they just mm-hmm. think opioids are the most evil thing in the world, so they just don't want to take them. Or they might have a personal history of addiction themselves, and they're justifiably looking to not put that in their bodies again. So we respect those choices. We do explain that pain can't always be managed sufficiently without some opioid use. And if they decide not to use any opioids, they may be experiencing more pain than somebody who has that option. And then we have that discussion and people, you know, make their own choices. So, um, I mean, having more pain after surgery is never going to kill anyone, but having too much medication after surgery could kill someone. Yes, so, that's uh, true. Not taking medication is not the end of the world. If that's what they want to do, we respect their choices. And we work with them to come up with a good plan using other medications, using numbing medications, long-acting ones, nerve blocks, whatever we agree to do together. Yeah. Everything is done in partnership with the patient. That's the advantage of having a practice like ours is that we're not you know, trying to squeeze an hour and a half discussion into 15 minutes. If it's an hour and a half discussion, we're going to take an hour and a half to do it, you know, mm-hmm. so that... Um, nobody feels like they ended that discussion and they didn't understand what was going on. You know, it's it's truly a partnership. We don't dictate anything to our patients. We just inform them and help them make uh, good choices. I think it's a great philosophy. Well, gosh, you've just been so informative today. Thank you for that. And any lasting thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with about our subject today? I think to um, be your own advocate and to um, ask questions and expect good answers, not to to be dismissed because you're asking questions. Hmm. Uh, Reflecting back on my experience with surgery a year ago, um, I had to be my own advocate to get better pain management and better anesthetic management during my surgery. Mm -hmm. And I think it made a big difference in the way I woke up from surgery and the way I recovered. And I share that experience with my patients all the time. I tell them, you know, I ask the questions and you should be asking too. And let's talk about this together. You know, this is not a one-way discussion. It's a two-way discussion. And so whenever patients, you know, people go to see a doctor, they should have those lines of communications open and be their own advocates. 
Wise words. Well, thank you very much. It's been a delight chatting with you today and a delight seeing you again after so long. Thank you, Dr. Nohan. It's been great to see you as well. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.